If you've got a Bible, we're going to open up to Revelation 2 today. We'll be reading verses 7 through 11 to get us started. Uh, by the looks of that picture, we're going to some fun places today. Maybe not fun places, but uh, interesting places. So we'll be covering a couple chapters together in our time. Uh, so uh, we'll turn over to chapter 6 in a little while. If you're familiar with the picture, you know where that's from. But I really believe God's going to give us some help today, um, really open some doors uh, to help uh, that he wants to give to our hearts today. So uh, let's get started. Look at Revelations 2. We studied the whole chapter of Revelation 2 last week, but we left out these few verses uh, because the tone's a little different when it comes to this particular church that's addressed um, and verse number 8. So Revelation uh, chapter 2 verse 8, to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Verse 10 might be one of the most difficult verses to read, let alone hear in the whole Bible, which is why I think God's going to give us some help today. Because a verse that difficult to hear means there's something that important for us to receive. But before we get into all this, I got to ask you a question that I think all of us have a pretty quick answer to. Do you remember the first person you trusted? The first person that you genuinely with your whole heart believed every word they said and believed that you could trust them with your life? I think everybody here can remember that first person. Maybe it was someone that you could not trust forever, but did for a season. Maybe it's someone that you still trust dearly today. Perhaps it's somebody that is, went on to be with the Lord. It's one thing to take somebody's word as truth. You know, it, to, to, to believe that somebody speaks true things is one thing, but it's a whole other thing to trust somebody. I mean, to believe someone, to believe in someone, to stake your weight on them, right? To put your weight on their shoulders. Uh, th this is one of those concepts that we don't always articulate or define that well, but when we kind of talk about it or express these things, everybody kind of just knows what it means to trust somebody and to be willing to trust someone. Tr trust is something that is intangible, but something that we all are only inclined to give out to those that show themselves trustworthy. We all kind of have that thing in our brain or in our hearts that clicks when somebody is trustworthy, we just know it. And more than that, we kind of feel it, don't we? Uh, it's not that we stand with our arms crossed, tapping our feet, waiting for someone to make our day and prove themselves, but it's like our nature kind of wakes up inside whenever we realize this person can be trusted. This person meets the prerequisites that my heart requires for trust. 
I think we all could agree if we went around the room and say, you know, what, what does somebody have to show to be trustworthy? I, I think we probably could agree that we'll trust somebody when we feel accepted by them, that if they accept us, then we can trust them. If we feel safe and secure around them or because of them, that means they're trustworthy. If we sense that they have a plan for us or a plan for the future, then we can trust them. It's like something in our souls will only relinquish trust when these things, and maybe a few others, but when these things are generally or appear to be met. Now, it's for these reasons that it's most likely the first person we ever trusted was someone that we felt loved by, someone that we received care from. I think, can we agree on that? That you trusted somebody originally way back for the first time, when you felt like they loved you and that they cared for you, you felt like there was something given to you by them that was just invaluable. Trust, as it turns out, is nurtured, fostered, and strengthened almost exclusively in loving relationships. You can't, you know, extract trust from someone by any other way except through a loving relationship nurtured, fostered, strengthened because of love. Now, maybe for you, you never remember a time where you didn't trust both of your parents. Maybe it, for you, it was one of your parents that you learned to trust and that because they were there for you and cared for you. Uh, maybe it was a foster parent, a guardian, a grandparent, but somebody in your life early and often made you feel nurtured, fostered, and strengthened. And because they loved you and cared for you, you felt like you could trust them with everything. And it never even was a question. It was just natural for you, wasn't it? To trust them. You see, when we're cared for, when we're loved and we're cared for and led to believe that someone has our best interest in mind, that's the big thing, isn't it? When we feel like they have our best in mind, trusting comes easy. And isn't it true that trusting means peace? That when you can lay your head down knowing that this person loves you and cares for you, and no matter what happens to you, they have your best in mind. That's a peace that you cannot put a price on. It is an amazing feeling, isn't it? Now, I'm sure there are times or were times and have been times even in your most trusted relationships where that trust was challenged. Let's be honest. Let's be real. There are seasons that come upon our lives where that trust is brought into question. Sometimes it's because the most loving humans can still stumble. And even the most caring people have chinks in their armor. Nobody's perfect. But other times, it's not that anybody does anything, but the circumstances surrounding the both of you and all of you shook both of you and shook you maybe more than anything. And as a result, your relationship was shaken. And it wasn't that they did something, but something happened in or around your relationship that caused you to question whether or not you could trust them or anybody maybe. The thing about human nature is when our surroundings are shaken, our relationships are shaken. It's just inseparable. Even if nobody in the relationship did anything differently, when circumstances change, our moods change, our feelings change, and we begin to look for different things that, that we will relinquish trust for. You can give somebody a reason to trust you, and if circumstances get a bit tense, they might question things, and we've all been there before. On paper, there's no reason to doubt. There's no reason for us to wonder if we can trust someone or whether they can trust us. But when our heads are spinning and all that's going around us in the world is, is overwhelming, our hearts can fail us for fear. And as a result, trusting is not easy and it is not natural. 
If you think back to your most tumultuous seasons in life, when things begin to spin out, when things begin to go awry, we usually turn to those that we are closest to. We turn to those that we trust in the most, and we are almost waiting for them to say a very specific set of words. All of us in those seasons, we turn to that person that we trust the most. Maybe it's a several group of, a group of people, most likely one person. When you're little, when you're older, regardless, all of us, when everything's just out of control, we almost all want to hear the same words come out of that person's mouth. Even if they have zero control over the situation, even if they have zero influence over the situation, we just want to hear them say, it's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. You see, those words coming out of the right person's mouth make us feel okay, even when things may not be okay, even when things may not look okay, even when things may not ever be okay. We want to hear someone say, it's going to be okay. Trust me. Trust me. They're the words that we long to hear when our hearts fail us for fear and despair. You know, in many ways, the book of Revelation are these very words from God to his church. You know, if you have a study Bible, if you write in your Bibles, I think it would almost be appropriate to put in the footnotes of the beginning of this book that Revelation is, are these very words from God to you. It's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. Trust me. Now, that may not be how you've been taught to read this book. That may not be how you've heard this book taught. And if you spot read any given chapter, you may not get that vibe from this book. But I can assure you today that if Revelation is in the Bible for any one reason, it's this reason. God is saying to his church, he is shouting to his church, it may not feel okay, it may not seem okay, all might not appear okay, but trust me, it's going to be okay. Better than okay, but we'll start with that baseline. Revelation, more than any other book, gives us an up-close and personal look at the real unfiltered tension that persists between the forces that oppose God and those that belong to him. And here's what I love about Revelation. It does not hide the reality of this world. It doesn't just say, oh, it's going to be okay. Look outside. Everything's perfect. And we look outside and we don't see what the Bible says that is out there. Revelation is honest about our world. It is raw and unfiltered and gives us an up-close view of how things have been, are, and always will be during this age. More than any other book, it gives us a look at the tension that exists between we who belong to God and the forces that oppose him and those who belong to him as a result. Revelation addresses a world fully immersed in the church age wherein the movement of God has been commissioned to sweep over the world, to sweep over the world wherein the work of redemption is set in motion by Jesus. It's in full force. The enemy has been put on notice and is responding fiercely. Now, when I call it the church age, it's not some dispensational statement. It's just acknowledging that Jesus' death and resurrection opened the gates, opened the doors of heaven, opened the doors of the kingdom of God so that humanity could be reconciled to God. The revelation really bookends this redemption, this age of redemption, this age of grace, talking about what the church faces during its mission, looking forward to the day when this mission is complete and a new age will dawn. Now, what I want to do for a minute, I want to talk about from a top-down perspective and get an understanding of the big idea that is really going on in Revelation that is framing around this book. 
Because we're going to be specifically talking about this tension, this opposition that we face in this world. The church has faced, is facing, and will face. And up on the screen, you see Revelation has a worldview that is feeling the redeeming impact of the church. So when we, when we read Revelation, we get the idea that the church is on mission and the church is getting things done. The church is spreading the good news and that impact is felt. But also there is a bitter pushback from sin and death. That all is not so perfect, even though the redeeming impact of the church is evident, there is a bitter pushback from sin and death during this age. And Revelation is honest about it, and it gives us a very detailed understanding about it. Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection have marked an end to sin's condemnation and death's suffocation over humanity. There was and there is a way out now. There was and there is a way to overcome, and that's what Revelation is really kind of shining through the darkness, shining into the darkness. Emphasis on a way because Jesus famously said, I am the way, as in a pathway, the pathway from sin to salvation, from death to life. In the earliest of days, before Christianity was called Christianity, those inside and outside referred to the movement simply as the way, because it was the pathway from this to that, from death to life, from lost to found, from sin to salvation. And now that's in line with Jesus' teaching because what did Jesus say from the beginning? What was his message? Follow me. So the church continued preaching that same message. Follow Jesus. He is the way. He is the only way. This is important to distinguish because Jesus' work on the cross would not and does not apply to everybody by default. And this is very important for us to understand we don't say this with delight or with glee against those that are not saved, but we say this with truth and we say this with compassion. The work of Jesus' cross does not apply by default to everyone. Salvation comes by knowing Jesus personally and following him individually. The short version of why this is true, it goes like this. Back to where sin comes from and, back to, and, and understanding how we are saved. We inherit our sin from Adam. We believe that. The Bible teaches that. We inherit our sin from Adam. We receive salvation from Jesus. Adam began us down the wrong path. Jesus restarted us down a new path. He is the exit ramp. He is the off-ramp from old to new. He is the way to get off of the road of sin and death and find a new way. He's the only way. The fall happened because humanity chose to rebel against God and turn to sin. Therefore, salvation happens when humans choose to worship God and turn from sin, from one way to another. The church's mission is to get the good news of Jesus to all the sons and daughters of Adam, to show us that we can be freed from sin, we can be rescued from death, we can be saved, changed, and given new life. But again, it's a choice. Adam chose to sin. Jesus chose to sacrifice himself. We must choose to surrender to God and be saved. It's in line with the way the Bible teaches how we fail and how we found a new way. God has done the work by all means. There is no work that we do. God has done the work. Jesus has finished the work, but we must respond to him. 
this needs this is a need that the church understands this is why we have been commissioned to the world this need for a personal response is why there is a great commission why the gospel must be preached to all nations to all peoples in every generation the apostle paul put it this way in romans 10 Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? Of course, we know the answers to those questions. It's impossible. And Paul says this is why it's so important. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, the word of God, the word about Jesus in the Bible and through the gospel message. But the one thing about this, this takes time on the church's part, doesn't it? And also it takes patience on God's part. Because while God waits on people to hear and believe, a whole lot of sin, suffering, and sorrow persists. So not only is God patient towards those that have not believed, God must be patient towards all the sin and the suffering and sorrow as well. So likewise, we must be patient as all the sin, suffering, and sorrow persists. A whole lot of ungodliness goes on in the world as God waits. The reason why God does not put a stop to it all, the reason why God doesn't judge and stop every sin is because he's patient with every sinner because behind every sin is a sinner for whom Christ died. So that's why God is patient with every sinner and why we must be patient as well, but also why we must endure the hardships that we no doubt face as a result of God's patience. Now, as a result, sin and death and Satan test God's patience, yet God never wavers God is committed to his plan. He's committed to evangelism. He's committed to the Great Commission. He is committed to the church age or he would have bailed out a long time ago and we never would have got a shot. But where this gets a little uncomfortable for you and me is, is bringing this bigger picture into view and on our end, the pressure from this world gets a bit much and the weight gets a bit heavy because it does sometimes, doesn't it? And we as, we, as we become Christians, we begin to wonder, when's it all going to end? Why doesn't God intervene? We forget why God doesn't intervene, don't we? Because we're on mission, we're called to serve the Lord, we're in the middle of this battle for the soul of the world, and we can't forget what our mission is. If there's anything we learn from the book of Revelation and from the church history over the last 2,000 years, it's that sin and death have fought tooth and nail against Jesus and his work and have shown that they are not going to let go of this world without a fight, which explains the opposition, the oppression, and persecution. But we also learn that God is as much or more committed to reach people with salvation, which explains his mercy and his grace and his patience. The churches of Asia were his lights in the heat of the battle in the first century. We are his lights in the early 21st century. The battle rages on. God's patience and commitment presses on. But the question is, what about us? What is our response to all of this? Especially as and when the tension tightens, when the pressure increases on a missional level, we're called to preach the gospel to help win the world to Christ. On a personal level, we're often overwhelmed by the forces that pressure and intimidate and antagonize us. And the question Revelation puts front and center 
is are we committed to endure in spite of trials and tribulations that will, I know that we would love that to say that might come, but as we've read already, it's not a question if, but it's definite, right? That will come. Are we committed to endure in spite of the trials that we do, that we are facing? This was the question that two churches were wrestling against some 1,900 years ago particularly. Five of the seven churches are approved for falling away or losing their passion for Jesus, but two of them are not criticized nor corrected, but they're encouraged. These two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, were faithful in almost every way. And as a result, they were persecuted. They were facing persecution from every side. You could not ask for more faithful and biblical churches. And as a result of their faithfulness, they were persecuted in the most intense way imaginable. We've discussed why this was the reality they lived in. We've also discussed why this is the reality that we live in. No one likes to suffer. No one likes trials or tribulations, but the Bible does not hide the fact that part of being a Christian, part of being in the church, part of being God's people on mission for his gospel means that not only are we going to face trials, but we must endure them and believe in God's ability to redeem them and use them. Our notion is to always look for a way out, to expect God to remove them. But the message of the New Testament is that God does not and will not always remove them, but he will always use them. There are some Christian circles that may find God's word to Smyrna borderline absurd. But with all that in mind, it fits right into God's heart. But the question is, does it fit into our heart? I want you to look at verse number 10 again because this is just incredible. Listen to it. God says, do not fear any of those things which you are, as in definite, you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is, as in definite, is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Well, I don't want to be, I don't need to be tested. I don't want to be tested. What's this test about? That you will be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Is that literal? Is that just a symbolic? How long is is it 10 whole days? I mean, 10 days is long enough. I mean, whether it's more than that, hey, that's beyond us because 10 days as he is about to speak of, for many of them, there would not be anything after those 10 days. What does it say? Be faithful until death. So here's what, I mean, could you imagine getting this postcard? I mean, hey, I'll, give me the postcard about losing, leaving my first love. I'll, I'll, be, I'll feel bad about myself for a little bit because this postcard that God sent Smyrna says, yeah, listen, y'all, in 10 days, a lot of y'all are going to die. I mean, this is, you know, temperature's going up, but this is part of the reality that we got to deal with. In 10 days, a lot of your church is going to get wiped out. Don't be afraid. 
You guys, what does verse 9 say? You guys are spot on. You are faithful. I know your works. I know your poverty, but you're rich in your faith. I mean, nobody is as rich as you. You may not have what everybody else has, but you guys are spiritually running over. You guys have everything you could ever want as a Christian. You guys are the example that God would show off to the whole world if he could. You guys are everything Jesus wants in a church. Oh, by the way, in 10 days, you're going to die. Be faithful. Be faithful. Does that mean there might be a way out? Jesus doesn't say that. He says, do not fear. Suffering, prison, tribulation. I mean, one of those is bad enough. Do not fear suffering, prison, tribulation. Be faithful unto death. This is a command from God to these people. Do not be afraid, be strong, be brave, because in these trials, you are a light for the world to watch and observe. And the manner in which you suffer and die is going to speak volumes of your legacy. Can you imagine this? What I want to see in you is in the midst of your trials and tribulations is faithfulness. I mean, he doesn't give him room to pray about it, to ask for another option. He just says, this is going to happen. Be faithful. Don't be afraid. Doesn't offer them a way out. Doesn't say, if you pray hard enough, I'll remove it. He tells them, this is going to happen. And I'm asking you, I'm asking you, hold on to me, hold the line for me, so that your light may shine for them. I gotta ask you, church, what do we do with this? I mean, we know we have these kind of conversations a couple times a year. Nobody likes it, but this is real. What do we do with this? Well, first off, this is right in line with the rest of the New Testament. This is not just some revelation anomaly. This is New Testament teaching. With the message of Jesus, Peter, Paul, John, James, who preached that every believer will be tested by this world to reveal our true substance of our faith so that we might be primed and positioned to better spread our faith. And just so we have a holistic understanding of this, I want to show you how the who's who's of the Bible preach this same message and promise that God will use us in these trials. And even if they don't go the way we would like them to go, there's still a purpose in them and that God is still sovereign through them. And we are still better off with him than anywhere else. Jesus in John chapter 16, verse number 33 famously said, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In me, you may have peace. In the world, you will. Notice how there's a difference there. In me, you might have this, but in the world, you will have this. This first thing, it's an option. This last thing, it's a definite. You're gonna have trouble. People say they don't believe the Bible showed them this verse. (laughs) They can't say it's not true. In the world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What he's saying to us is, do not give up just because of things appear bad. Imagine the next 24 hours from Jesus, for Jesus when he said this. He said this the night before he died. Do you know what it was like for him? I mean, we spiritualize this, but he was beaten. He was nailed to a cross and suffered immensely. He went through real pain, real suffering, horrific torture on a Roman cross. 
beyond our imagination. Yes, he rose again three days later, but he went through that pain. He died. What is God saying to us here in Revelations 2.10? There is a purpose. Will you remain faithful in this purpose? Will you cling to God's promises and look for his purpose in the midst of the pain? Jesus says, you may have peace in me. In the world, you will have trouble. But if you're in me, that's greater than if you're in the world. Because in me, you can go through whatever the world throws at you. And in spite of the trouble, you can still have peace. Now, Jesus' followers, number one, Peter and his brother James came along later and added to this, echoing Jesus. Peter said this, Rejoice insofar as you share the sufferings of Christ that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. As in there's something God is doing in the trial that you may not understand and you may not see and you may not ever realize and this generation may not ever understand but there is something glorious being prepared through this trial because we know the cross produced a resurrection and if God sees fit that we might share in a suffering like Jesus himself went through, that means that God is doing something glorious. Now, I'm not saying don't pray for God to remove things. I'm not asking you to say to quit praying for God to heal and do this and that. I'm just asking you to understand what God might be doing in the trial that you face. Jesus' little brother James says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, I don't know about this, James. Do I really know this? I mean... James says, you know the testing of your faith is producing steadfastness. It's building your character. It's making you more like my big brother. And who doesn't need that? And if you let steadfastness have its full effect, because a lot of us don't let it get the full effect, we just get a little bit of it and we go home. Um, I've had enough, God. But let it have its full effect and you will be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. A lot of us are still lacking, aren't we? Maybe that's the secret. Now, Paul brings this more in line with the motive of revelation regarding how the churches counter the effects of darkness, shining a light in spite of the darkness that overwhelms us. Paul writes this to 2 Corinthians. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That we have been given this gift of salvation in jars of clay. What happens to jars of clay if you drop them? They crash, they break, they shatter. That, that means we're fragile. That means we're vulnerable. That means we bruise and get banged up easily. But what happens to a Christian who, in spite of the jars of clay that is carrying that spirit, what happens when that surpassing power raises us back up? keeps us going makes us endure makes us steadfast it, it begins to point to someone beyond us doesn't it Paul says we are afflicted in every way but we're not crushed we're perplexed but we're not driven to despair we're persecuted but we're not forsaken we're struck down but we're not destroyed I mean most people when they go through things they're crushed they're perplexed they're despaired they're forsaken they're done they're out they're quitting but Christians we have a better route to take and he, he explains it like this we're always carrying the body, the, in the body, the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested. As in, the death of Jesus, we're always bearing his cross so that, big phrase there, so that the resurrection of Jesus may be made known through our lives. 
So when you get bad news, and you're going to get bad news, I hope you don't, but when you do, it's an opportunity from God to say this can make the power and life of the resurrection of Jesus known in your world. And if we are mature Christians, we won't say, well, that doesn't sound any fun, or that doesn't sound like a good idea, that doesn't sound like what God would will for my life. If we have allowed him to do his perfect work, we will, as Peter said, as James says, we will rejoice. As Jesus said, we'll have peace. I'm not saying that we're all there. But the Smyrna church was. Paul says, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now, you know why he had to repeat that twice? Because they wouldn't have believed him if he just said it once. That's why I repeat myself. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. He's writing to the people that he's witnessing to. Us is the church, life is the world. Us is the minister's life is the people that they're preaching to. Since we have the same spirit of faith, we do not lose heart. Is that true for you? If we're going to overcome, if we're going to see the glorious purpose of it all, if we're going to be made complete, if we're going to display the life of Jesus, we must do what Revelation 2.10 says. Do not fear and be faithful. <laughs> you know the thing about someone who's afraid? It's obvious to everybody around them. Fear cannot be concealed. It's all over our faces, isn't it? Not to get too political here, but this is just real life stuff. We Americans have traded in our wardrobes for fear over the last few years. We have. Now, some people hear me say that, and you say, yeah, Justin, you're talking about those people that have been afraid of this pandemic, and not the people that just take precaution, but those people who let it dominate them. And some others of you hear me say that, and you're saying, Justin, you're talking about those people that are afraid of the government, and those people that are just quivering all over at conspiracy theories. They wring their hands because the wrong person's in charge. Let me clarify. Yes, I'm talking to all of us. You said, Justin, you don't know what's going on, and, and you do? No, what I know is the Bible tells us there is one who is in charge. I'm not making light of your fears. I'm just trying to get us to accept that they're fears. They're real fears. You know what happens when we're afraid? We panic, we scrape, and we claw, and we say things, and we do desperate things. Fear is not a good look on Christians. Fear is an oxymoron for Christians, but Christians are more afraid than they've ever been. You know what the Christians were facing in the times of Revelation? What does verse 10 tell us? Suffering, prison, death. Look over at Revelation 6. This is a passage everybody loves to talk about, the horsemen of the apocalypse, the horses of the apocalypse. I want you to listen to what John sees in this really strange vision. He sees these horses and these horsemen spreading these different problems throughout the world. He sees the church suffering under the terror of these horsemen 
Just listen to this, and this may not make a lot of sense to you, but I'll explain it to you. Just let's try to capture the image here. Now, I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, I heard one of, them, one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard a living creature say, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out and it was granted to one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and the people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. In verse 5, I heard uh, uh, he opened the third seal, and I heard a third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hands. I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for Daenerys and three quarts of barley for a Daenerys. Speaking of scarcity of supplies. And do not harm the oil or wine. And then the fourth seal was opened. I heard a fourth living creature say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse in the name of him who said on it was death, and Hades followed him. The power was given to him, given them over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword, with hunger, with death, and by beasts of the earth. Now, everybody loves to talk about these horsemen. Let me just make it very clear. These horsemen have been riding across this earth for 2,000 years. They have been, they are, and they will be. And it may get real bad one day when it's the final deal, but they're doing it right now. And you know what they bring to this world? Persecution from those that are in power. Chaos between neighbors. Poverty, hunger, plagues, pestilence, and famine all over the world. That's what they bring, and they are good at doing it. People say, is, is this a sign of one of the horses? Yes, it is. Every generation sees these horses right up and down the earth. But the message from God to his people is what? Do not be afraid and be faithful. If one rides right past you, be faithful. Don't be afraid. In verse 9 of chapter 6, says he opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony they held. They cry with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You know, there's a very good possibility, there's a very good probability that those at that altar that had just been martyred are the people from the church at Smyrna. Don't you think? Verse 10 of chapter 2 says, Hey, you're going to die. Chapter 6 says, Hey, these are people that just died. And they're wondering how long is this going to last? 2,000 years later, maybe we wonder the same because the same trials have come upon us. We will always face these trials. As long as God is patient with this world, as long as God so loves the world, we will face these trials. Which, thank God, he loves unconditionally. He's committed with enduring mercy. No one here wants him to back off of his mercy or love, do we? Of course not. So the answer to the question, how long, how long is as long as it takes to reach the most people with the gospel. God's message to us, do not fear, be faithful. Yes, there's a lot to be afraid of. Yes, it's difficult to be faithful under fire. Back in chapter 2, it kind of just kind of goes by in passing. Jesus says, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. That in and of itself admits that the first death wasn't going to be delightful. That dying, suffering as a part of God's plan doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. 
He says, but the second one won't. And I don't think that's being flippant. He's just saying, hey, uh, this is not gonna be easy. But the question comes down to this. Do you, do we trust Jesus? He begins the address to the church of Smyrna by stating, by reminding them who he is, the first and the last, and reminding them the basis of their relationship. He was dead and he came to life. Jesus, Jesus says, I've had the first word, I'll have the last word. I died to save you, I live to keep you. Do you trust me? God has proven that he is trustworthy through Jesus. He accepts us as we are. He promises eternal security as he reiterates in verse number 11. He shows us his plan. You remember, God, John sent this book to seven different churches. It shows that there is a plan beyond this age because we can read the end of the book. In closing, though, I want to read his address to the church at Philadelphia because it brings us a glimpse of the future. Chapter three, verse seven. The angel of the church of Philadelphia write this. These things says he who is holy and he who is true. He who has the key of David, who opens and, who, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For I know you have a little strength because they've been suffering. I know you have a little strength, but you've kept my word and have not denied my name. And by not denying my name, it's cost you, hasn't it? Some of yours have been killed as a result. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Behold, fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from the heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 7 and 8 says that there is an open door. God does not want us to ever question where you stand with him. His posture towards us, he has opened the door to the kingdom. Our strength may be little, our trials may be great, but God's promises are greater. We have unlimited access to his grace. When we are at our weakest, his strength makes us our strongest. Verse 10 speaks of the final judgment that, that will come upon this earth one day. You can read, it, read about it in Revelation 19 and 20. Verse 10 says, there is a final judgment coming on this world, but those in Christ will be spared. Verse 11 says, Jesus says, I am coming quickly to receive those to me. Verse 12 says, there is a new Jerusalem. There is a heaven. You can read Revelations 21 and you can get a glimpse of that heaven where there are no more tears. There are no more trials. There are no more suffering. There is no more death. There is only life and there is only Jesus. Jesus says to Philadelphia, the, one, the only one who has the ability to open the door to heaven and God's kingdom is him, and the only one who can shut it is him, and right now, he has opened the door. His mission to save the world is set on cruise control. It is set on as fast as it can go. Church, is this our message 
that yes, there are some trials. Yes, there are some tough days. Yes, there are some seasons that are difficult, but the, the door of heaven is wide open. The kingdom of God's doors are wide open. He is our hope. We can be faithful. We don't have to be afraid because heaven's doors are wide open. And Jesus is coming soon. Are we proclaiming this to the world? Or are we clinging to something else in our trials? Notice it says, I have set over you an open door. Listen, the open door is not this political agenda or that political agenda. It's not prosperity or health on this world. The open door is the door of the kingdom of God. Jesus does not take sides on this globe. He takes over this globe. Right? He is not on somebody's side. He is above every side. He is the one who rules over everyone and everything. So in the trials that you face, knowing that they're absolutely worth it, they're getting us ready for heaven, for the kingdom. They're keeping us on mission. So the question is, are we too busy being afraid of this world and taking orders from this world to be faithful to God? Are we too busy living in fear of and submission to man's kingdoms and man's agendas? Are we running to and fro, fighting battles that we shouldn't fight to be faithful for and surrender to God's kingdom? Could you imagine if that was Smyrna's agenda or if that was Philadelphia's agenda? Oh, they may have not died, but they wouldn't be written about in the Bible like this. I'll guarantee you that either. Why would we ever be afraid when God says, I have the first word, I'll have the last word, I was dead and I'm alive, trust me, it's going to be okay. People ask me, is it wrong to be afraid? Well, yeah, it's wrong to be afraid. Why do you think Jesus says, or God says in the Bible over 300 times, do not be afraid? You know who it's wrong for? It's wrong for you. I mean, God's not mad at you for being afraid. He's not angry at you for being afraid. But he's saying to you, why are you afraid? And the reason we're afraid is we still have our heels dug too deep in this world. How in the world could the people at Smyrna hear Jesus say, you're going to die. Be faithful. And they were. Do we trust him? Our lives reveal the true answer. Our responses to this life and its curveballs reveal the true answer. For a world full of uncertainty, Revelation was and is and will always be God's promise to the church, offering us grace and peace. Do not be afraid, be faithful. Revelation may be present, may be presented at times as a question mark about our future, but it's more than that. It's, it's an exclamation point about God's faithfulness and God's sovereignty. It reminds us that God is trustworthy. God is good no matter what. How good the world is to, or isn't to us. Heaven's gates are wide open. Our hearts should be wide open to receive the strength that God wants to give us today. If you need strength, would you be willing to confess your fear and ask God for help? I mean, what does chapter 3 verse 8 says? God says, I have set before you an open door. I know you have a little strength. God says, I, I, don't hide it. Don't lie about it. I know it's true. I know you have a little strength. It's okay. I love you and I'm here for you. Don't live in fear anymore. 
Would you be willing to confess that fear and ask God for help? Confess your weakness and ask him for strength? Jesus promises to give it. He whispers, he shouts to us, trust me, it's going to be okay. He's proven himself faithful. Maybe you would like to put your faith in him for the first time. Or maybe as a Christian, you'd like to renew your faith for another time. I want us to pray this prayer together. If this is the first time that you've ever prayed this prayer or a prayer like this, I pray that you'll come publicly, acknowledge to the church and to God that you have accepted him as your savior. But if you're a Christian, this prayer can be an opportunity for renewal to admit that you still need grace and you still need help because of course we always will. I'll read it first and you can repeat after me. Let's say this together. Jesus, I am a sinner, weary, weak, and afraid. I believe you died for my sins and are greater than my fears. I trust in you for salvation. Save me and make me yours. Keep me at peace in you. You see, if you're a Christian, we, we renew that same faith every day, don't we? Because salvation is not a one and done thing. It's an everyday reminder and renewal. But if you've never prayed that prayer and you sincerely ask Jesus to be your savior today, then that is all that it takes to exchange your faith, to exchange your trust and put it into him. I pray that during this invitation as we sing about his coming, as we anticipate his coming, this altar is wide open. If you need strength, God is here to give it to you. The doors are wide open. Heaven is pouring out help today. If you need Jesus, if you found Jesus, would you come and let the world know, let the church know, and if you just want more help, come and get all that God wants to give you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this reminder that this world is troubled. This world is fragile. This world is wearied, and we are too. But Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made an open door. You have put an open door before us. Yes, we are weak. Yes, we are fragile. Yes, we are frail. But in you, we have strength. We have grace. We have mercy. And we have salvation. If there's anybody in the house today that they prayed that prayer for the first time and, and they want to come and make it known to the church that they have accepted Jesus, Lord, would you give them that confidence to do it and that courage to go to our world and represent you? Would you take away their fears and would you give them faith? Lord, for the rest of us, if we've just renewed our faith, I pray you would help us all to anticipate your kingdom every day. You are working some good. You are doing something great. Help us not to cower. Help us not to be afraid. But help us to be faithful, even unto death. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.